Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant and Jerry, which means it's time for Stuff You Should Know about public broadcasting. How you feeling? Good. I'm full of beans today. That's the last thing I wanted to hear. And you're stuck in here with me for a couple hours, buddy. Oh, dear. That's the musical fruit. Yeah. That's what I hear. Yep. That's what I've been hearing since I was six years old. Is it musical fruit? I thought it was magical fruit. Uh, well, Musical I mean, fruit makes way I think more that's sense. probably regional. Huh. Like soda and Coke and yeah. pop and all that? Musical, magical. Sure. Um, Don't talk about it at all. One of those. Actually, I grew up. It wasn't even musical. Uh, I, I just grew up with beans. Beans good for your heart. Oh well, that that's pretty. That's real. Yeah. So that's the that's how I rolled in the ATL. Yeah, you did. <laughs> <clears throat> so you feeling uh, you feeling pretty good? Yeah, I think it's a very wonderfully disrespectful way to open up a show about one of our finest institutions. I know. <laughs> I really feel on edge because you know that every single. NPR personality is going to hear this one. Uh, you think? Every single one. No. Guy Raz right now is sitting there like, these two idiots. Well, Terry Gross already thinks we're idiots. She is my hero, buddy. <laughs> I don't think that there has ever been a finer radio program than Fresh Air. Yeah. I mean, she's the best. She's <clears> a legend. <throat> she's awesome. Uh, you ever heard an interview with her? Uh, no. They're I recommend it. She's a pretty sharp tack. Yeah. So I'm sure they're pretty fun. In fact, you know what? Perfect time to shout out our buddy mm-hmm. Jesse Thorne mm-hmm. uh, of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne has a short run series called The Turnaround where he interviewers legendary. He interviews legendary interviewers. Oh, OK. That's so like smart. Ira Glass. Yeah. And Errol Morris. Sure. And, boy, I th- think Terry Gross is in there. I'm not sure. Got to be. I don't think hers is out yet. I'm not going to promise that because I'm not positive. Okay. But I can hold my breath, though, right? But it's a really cool show. All right. A, a very, uh, <clears throat> uh, just real interesting to hear because I think Jesse's a great interviewer. And then to hear him interview the great interviewers about interviewing. Right. It makes your head just turn 180 <laughs> degrees. It's really cool. All right, Chuck. Yes. So we're talking public broadcasting, yeah. which, big depending fan. on how you, okay, you're a big fan. Sure. So it probably doesn't sound a little dull to you talking about public broadcasting, but I'm sure there's people out there who just walked right past this one. And hopefully some of them said, you know what? No, I'm going to give the dudes a chance. I'm going to listen. Those people will be richly rewarded by this episode because it turns out that public broadcasting, it's history, Mm -hmm. it's present, it's future. Hopefully. All very interesting. Yeah. And if you are not a fan of it, then... um well, you're in the minority, technically. Yeah, they've got some big numbers, bigger than I realized. Yeah, more than half of the U.S. population tunes in to public TV or radio or online. So we're talking PBS and NPR mm-hmm. generally. Right. Uh, that's 170 million Americans. And um, they it says here that PBS gets has more viewers than our dearly beloved Discovery Channel even. Mm-hmm. HGTV. Right. And A&E, which are all thought of as these, well, they are very big networks. Juggernauts. Yeah, but I think people hear PBS, you get a certain, like, 
I think some people think it's the treasure that it is. Some people might be a little bored by it right. without realizing, oh, but wait a minute. I saw Monty Python and Benny Hill on PBS. I'm so glad you when I was a kid to think of Benny Hill or I sure love Downton Abbey. And oh, wait a minute. That was PBS, too. Right. Or Antiques Roadshow. I mean, some Mr. Rogers, some some of the more legendary shows in American history. Right. And it's not like all things considered in Morning Edition and Fresh Air and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me are like American life are are any slouches at all. You know, like this. These are like if you step back and and put the rosters of NPR and PBS together, it makes up a pretty big swath of the American fabric. Totally agreed. Yeah. Well, thank you. I agree with myself on that one as well. (laughs) So I didn't realize how new they were, though. Did you? Yeah, I thought I think I thought it was seventies. Oh well, you were dead on. Yeah, it started in nineteen seventy. Actually, it goes back a little further than that to the public um, public broadcasting act. And actually, we should go back even slightly further than that to set this whole thing up, right? Okay. So radio comes up, starts to become a a, a mass medium, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the the UK and Europe. And America at the time were basically faced with this thing, like we've got this huge new technology. Up to this point, it's been newspapers and dudes on horseback running through towns. That's how we got the word out. Yeah. Now everybody's starting to get radios. We've yeah. got this this really powerful thing. Uh, what do we do with it? And over in Europe and the UK, they said this is a public good, and we need to treat it as such. Yeah. We need to we need to take it seriously. We need to make sure that. Public affairs programming gets onto the air and they don't have to worry about competing for ad dollars or anything like that. We're going to fund it publicly. In the U.S., we released two acts. There was the Radio Act of 1927 and the Communications Act of 1934. And both of them set up the current competitive capitalist market that we have for broadcasting in the country, right? Yeah. And it worked. There's, From what I've seen, one of the reasons why it worked was because – there was also this kind of tacit understanding among journalists who were part of these broadcast networks that they had a, a responsibility to inform the public. Yeah, and there were also only three of them at the time. Sure. But um, over time, broadcasting in the United States went more and more and more toward entertainment because that could get more people and that's that meant you could get more advertising money. Yeah. So we got further and further away from public affairs programming and, and news and got more and more into entertainment. And by the 50s, it became evident to some people that we needed something in addition to or to replace the commercial model that we had in the U.S. Yeah. And this was even pre-cable <laughs> TV. Oh, yeah. Like these are just the net, the big three, pre-Fox even. This is ABC, CBS, and NBC uh, starting to show things like the Honeymooners and realizing people are way more into the Honeymooners sure. than Walter Cronkite. Well, maybe not. They were people were into the news back then. Yeah, but even if even if you do have people who are into the news, there are some certain things that have to do with the commercial model when put up against the public broadcasting model that inherently make public broadcasting more appealing if you're trying to get public affairs programming across. And one of the big Correct. ones, Chuck, is if you are a program director for NBC mm-hmm. and it's prime time when you know everybody's home, are you going to put on 
one of your big money makers like the honeymooners that right. you can charge top dollar from advertisers for? Or are you going to put on the McNeil Lair news report? Where Snooze. you're where <laughs> you're not going to get as many people, but there's some really in-depth yeah. investigative journal journalism because they don't have to worry about attracting advertisers. Yeah, ideally, um, they can just focus on the journalism. Which one are you going to do? Well, you're going to do both, but it's a matter of when you do both. Right. You know. Right. So are you going to do prime the one time. like at five thirty? Right. Right. Or are you going to do a prime time? And at five thirty, not everybody's home from work yet. So overall, you have a less informed citizenry. Just yeah. from when you choose to put oh, your yeah. news on. I haven't watched, I don't watch the news any more at all, not even cable news, but hey. I can't remember the last time I watched like local news or a news program on a network. Right. I don't even know. I guess when I lived in LA, <laughs> I didn't have cable. I would watch the news sometimes. I gotcha. Because I don't think I had internet yet. I had like a, an antenna. I, I've, my, my news junkiedom has come and gone like over time it's sure. waxed and waned it feels pretty gone this time yeah just getting used up by cable news used yeah abused yeah <laughs> just being done with it, it's pretty freeing isn't it yeah even networks i like you know i just i don't want to hear it anymore yeah um and the way people ingest news these days is just so different you know yeah i get most of my news honestly from twitter yeah social media that's how it's done these days mm-hmm. but I, I was going back to la i was I used to sit around and watch local news in L.A. It was pretty great, I have to admit. I'm, I don't There's know if it still is. There's a lot to talk about. Yeah, it was just weird, and the personalities were kind of interesting. But oh, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I think it was like started at like 4.30 and right. then ran all the way up to whatever the big nightly news programs were, what, like 7? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, Ted just, Cobble takes over. Yeah, hours and hours of weird Southland news. I gotcha. Yeah. It was Told pretty, to you by a man wearing a cape. Maybe. Yeah. It was that weird? Yeah, or I don't know. It, it was strange. But then I kind of miss the old Atlanta news because I grew up watching. It's pretty staid local. with giant helmet hair. That's Atlanta local news. Yeah, and I think most cities have these stalwarts that have been around forever. Sure. You know? Yeah, Monica Kaufman. Yeah, who is married now. She's not even Monica Kaufman anymore. Oh, what's what's her name now? I don't know because I've watched the news in 20 years. <laughs> I got you. But I think someone told me, you know, she... As a married name now, I was like, what? Huh. That's Monica Kaufman. Yeah. Or that, you know, you would see one of them. I worked at the laser show and I would see like uh, Ken Burns, the weatherman mm-hmm. at the laser show. Mm-hmm. And it's like a legit celebrity sighting. Oh, yeah. He gives you like the wink and yeah, the Yeah, everyone's crowding around getting his autograph. Sure. It's the anchorman thing, you know? Right. It's like the salad days. Yeah. Which are now gone because of cable news and the internet. Well, yeah, the salad days for them. Sure. Now it's our salad days. It's our right. time. Yeah, <laughs> that's true, too. And that applies not just to local news. It applies to, to news in general, um, including NPR and including PBS. Yeah. That there's this huge shift. I don't know if you've heard this, but there's a big shift to, to the Internet now. <laughs> that's true. People are starting to consume, like you said, news in different ways. Yeah. And, and public broadcasting is having to keep up just as much as anybody. But it's it occupies this weird niche that we'll get into. But you want to take a break first and regroup? Yeah, we'll come back here and talk about uh, Lyndon Johnson. I can't wait. <laughs> Joshua and Charles, stuff your show. 
All right, Chuck. LBJ. So, yes, LBJ. Did you know that he uh, owned some, I think, TV stations back in Texas when he was a, a senator? I don't think I knew that. He was. So he was real in favor of public broadcasting. Actually. Well, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1967, uh, well, I, I mean, in 1967, he signed the Public Broadcasting Act into law. But previous to this, uh, there was something called the NET. Mm-hmm. Uh, National Entertainment Times? What was it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> waka waka. What was it? I'm sure it was National Education Television. Yes. National Education Television. They were the precursor to uh, what would eventually become CPB, Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Mm-hmm. But at the time, the NET would, uh, they would run things that could be critical of the government and its foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And some say, I don't think it was entirely due to that, but some say that that did play a part and the government eventually funding via the Public Broadcasting Act, public television. Yeah. So maybe they could get a little bit more favorable coverage. Right. It's pretty North Korean in mentality if you think about <laughs> it. It kind of is. You know, and if you step back and look at it, the idea of public broadcasting, government-funded public broadcasting, should terrify yeah. everybody. Yeah. But the way that but it's Sesame always Street been... Sesame Street is very scary. Right, know? right. But the way that it's always been pitched and, and, um, and sold is... No, it's taxpayer funded, so it belongs to the people, not the government. Yeah. It's supposed to be insulated. It's a different estate. It's a fourth estate. It's not the government. It's its own thing. Uh-huh. It's supposed to be kept separate. So I was surprised to see that, but it makes total sense. The idea that, oh, yeah, we'll bring you into the fold. We'll fund you, but you owe us big time. Yeah. I mean, I wonder what kind of like real talks were had over that, if any, or if it was just sort uh-huh. of like, understood like hey here's who's writing your checks now well i think it was also a convergence of different interests right so the government wanting to get rid of criticism Uh or clamp down on criticism coincided with people who wanted more public affairs broadcasting yeah and then you had some endowments that were well-heeled well-moneyed and they all kind of came together to create this corporation for public broadcasting that came out of the public broadcasting act yeah, so this, uh, like you said, you set it up nicely with radio, but um, radio started to decline with the advent of television. And so in order, I mean, one of the main reasons they signed the Public Broadcasting Act was trying to get the this non-commercial radio going in right. a legit way. Yeah. So they signed, uh, Johnson signs the act. Uh, the federal government creates the CPB, like we mentioned, Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and they are not... They don't produce TV. No. They they basically dole out money. Uh, they're the they're the gatekeepers. Yeah. In a way. They say, here, get yourself a, a nice little radio transmitter with this. <laughs> but no, that's what they do. They, yeah. They dole out money. They cover licensing fees or copyright fees. They cover a lot of the uh, technical infrastructure. Uh-huh. Um, and they give a lot of money directly to smaller market. NPR or PBS stations. Yeah, I mean, they created the CB. Uh, I'm going to say that the whole time. CPB created uh, NPR in 1970, and before that, PBS in '69. So they basically said, "We need a TV wing and a radio wing." Uh-huh. Going to create these, and we're going to dole out money uh, this year. Actually, 2016, 2017, 2018, and then. Uh, projected or at least asked for for 2019, mm-hmm. they have requested the same amount of money, which you don't even see that very often. No. Where they're not asking for a raise or whatever. 
right. or increased funding of $445 million, which amounts to 0.01%, 0.01% of the federal budget. Yeah, and there's a lot of debate that we'll get into when we talk about some of the controversies and criticisms of public broadcasting. And believe me, we're talking about those. <laughs> but um, a lot of people say that's pretty disingenuous to point out what a minuscule amount of the budget that is because it, it's still $445 million. Yeah. It's still half a billion dollars. Yes. And then on the other side, which we'll hear a little bit more about too, um, a lot of people who are on the public broadcasting side say – just forget it. Just get rid of that. Just we don't need that money. Let's go without it. There's so many strings attached to that four hundred and forty five yeah. million dollars. It makes up such a small portion of, say, like NPR itself's operating budget that we just don't even need it. It's not even worth the trouble. So yeah. There's a big debate, which is weird because some some people on the um, public radio side and some ardent critics of public or public broadcasting um or at agree. Least government funding for public broadcasting. Right. Yeah. Agree. Yeah, it's a little weird. Yeah. I mean, trust me, I've I've found myself reading some of this thinking maybe you should just be free from those shackles because sometimes the public will step up and you might get more funding. Yeah. You know, when something is threatened. Right. You know? Yeah, at least at you first. Know. Yeah. The question is whether that could be sustained for the long term. You know? Yeah. Well, we'll get into all that. Okay. But, all right. Uh, you mentioned uh, NPR. They actually get um, less than one percent of that for their operating budget. So the four hundred forty-five million. It's not like they say, "All right, NPR, you get two hundred and twenty something million, and PBS, you get the rest." Right. Uh, NPR gets less than one percent, and they actually have a mandate, uh, CPB, of ninety-five uh, percent of their spending um, has to be on local public media stations, content development, community services, uh, and then what they they call other related needs. Right. To- toilet paper, I guess, and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping the AC on. Yeah. So, Chuck, here's how here's how the whole thing works. You ready? Yep. You and I pay taxes. Boo. It goes, some of it goes to the Corporation for, for Public Broadcasting. Hooray. In the form of about $445 million a year. Yeah, and to, in the form of about, like, Four dollars per taxpayer. Is that I right? saw. I saw between. I saw one. One group found a dollar thirty-five a person. That's is what, for every person. I don't think for every tax-paying person. Oh, I see. Okay, well then, for every tax-paying person, it's about four bucks. Okay. Um. So taxes go to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and then um, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting spends like ninety-five percent of that on the small local stations, right? Correct. Yeah. Well, and you know the other stuff. Content development and okay, and then you've got the small local stations subscribing to NPR and PBS, yeah. who have shows that they create, produce. Uh-huh. NPR's very famously All Things Considered and Morning Edition, right? Started in 1971, and then Morning Edition in 1979. Okay, long so, running. So all that money goes taxes, corporation to public broadcasting, smaller affiliates, and then it goes back up. So it goes down from the top. To the smaller affiliates, and then back up to NPR and PBS okay. for the for the programs that they're developing. So rather than the taxes going directly to NPR or to PBS, yeah, it goes to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. But even still, rather than going directly to NPR or PBS, it goes to the smaller affiliates, who then 
give it to NPR and PBS. And by give it, you mean they pay licensing fees to play those shows on their stations. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, uh, they, I think they subscribe, and they pay, like, a yearly fee to carry that show. Yeah, and when it first started, uh, NPR, and we'll cover NPR first largely and then get into PBS, but uh, in 1970 is when NPR started. And at the time, there were only 90 member stations, and now there are close to 1,000 member stations all over the country. Mm-hmm licensing these uh, legendary shows. Right. And then for the smaller local affiliates, if you have all things considered on, you're going to attract a a percentage of your town's listeners. Sure. The more listeners you have for that, the more pledges you'll get during your pledge drive. Correct. Right. And then you also, the more listeners you have, the more um, contributions you can get through underwriting, too. Yeah, but also you'll have to pay more money to license these shows, too. Right, the more listeners you have. Yeah, like, um, well, I guess we should go over how, where they get their funding largely and then how they charge the member stations. Uh, and 2016 um, says 39% was from fees and dues from member stations, so close to 40%. Yeah. Uh, corporate sponsorship, 24%, which has risen over the years, I think. I think that was kind of a controversial thing for a while, whether or not they wanted to take on any of that. I think it still is. Is it? Yeah. Like how much they're beholden to that? Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, grants and contributions, 14%. And then, um, like you've mentioned, foundations, endowments, uh, colleges and universities, stuff like that will pitch in some dough. Right. What's the big one that it's always the... The fourth? Uh, oh, the Catherine T. <laughs> wait. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Yeah, exactly. It's like drilled into your head after yeah. all these years. And the Chubb Group for PBS. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and members like you. Yeah. Um, so Morning Edition and all, all Things Considered, they are um, – stations are charged based on the volume of their listeners plus a multiplier. And then things like Fresh Air apparently are priced in proportion to that station's revenue. So – Smaller stations don't have to pay as much as bigger stations, which is great because again, the the whole idea between b- behind public broadcasting is that you have stuff that's supposed to be, like you said, not beholden to advertisers. Right. So if Company X is you know screwing over this town's water supply, then but they advertise with all of the broadcast networks that are yeah. commercially driven. Those those networks news might not mention it. But public public uh, broadcasting will probably do that story and will let everybody know. Yeah, that's the idea. So it's important for everybody to have public broadcasting, and that's why the the smaller ones are supported by the larger ones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, PBS on the other side, we mentioned Mr. Rogers, Nova. Man, so good. Growing up, that was a good one. Wasn't Cosmos on PBS? I think so. I think it was originally. It seems like a very PBS-y show. Sure, that turtleneck. <laughs> uh, Masterpiece Theater, of course. Uh, this Old House, The Frugal Gourmet. Who was that? Was that Julia Child or Jacques Pepin? Oh, I immediately thought Julia Child, but now you have me wondering. We'll find out. Okay. I'll get to the bottom of this, Chuck. Uh, you mentioned McNeil Lair Report, Evening at the Pops. Uh, Sesame Street, probably the most legendary not probably, definitely the most legendary kids show of all time. And PBS gets about 200 million viewers annually, representing 82% of 
of uh, U.S. television households. So they're they're big, you know. They're, 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 they're <laughs> That's not. Way to they're it. not like. Uh, I mean, I know you think of PBS as like the sweet little like publicly funded thing. But that's that's big stuff. Like if they took in ads, mm-hmm. they probably wouldn't have to sweat it at all. No, you know. But that's a double-edged sword well, because then they lose their their public value if they start taking in ads allegedly. Which yes. again is why some people have it really stuck in their crawl that they have underwriting at all. Yeah, uh, it's Jeff Smith, by the way. Never heard of him. Frugal Gourmet. Yeah. Well, not in the seventies. It wasn't. Was it, it? Yeah, it said he released a book in 1984 called The Frugal Gourmet. Huh. He's the only person associated with it. Jeff Smith, it sounds like an alias to me. <laughs> it really does. Maybe it's Jacques Pepin is French for Jeff Smith. Yeah, it says Jeff Smith, 1939 to 2004. You apparently. said Jeff. Right. <laughs> Jeff the chef. Jeff Jeff. He was the frugal gourmet. He was, uh, according to the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, TV's original celebrity chef. So oh, wow. He wasn't that big of a celebrity, apparently. How about that? So um, PBS has 350 member stations as of now, and um, they are in all 50 states, plus uh, Guam, Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, and American Samoa. Yeah. They got their own member stations. Yep. Pretty neat. And they, for the record, get about 7% of their funding from CPB. Right, but just like with the NPR model, local affiliates yeah. pay to carry Antiques Roadshow. As they should. Man, if you want to get some viewers, just have an Antiques Roadshow marathon. Do you, do you watch it? Have you ever seen it? Um, yeah, I have seen it. Uh, so good. It's just it's like how it's made. You just get sucked yeah. in. It's a lull, it lulls you into yeah. its trap. <laughs> well, that's like, I mean, this uh, our own article at House of Works has a little sidebar about the sound of NPR, how it was parodied uh, with Delicious Dish on Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. so famously, but that's the thing. You know, you I used to listen to public radio on the radio during my commutes before I even really knew what I was listening to because I didn't want to wake up to a lot of noise. Oh, yeah. And it was just so soothing. It just kind of eased you into the day, huh? Yeah, absolutely, and it still does. I still listen to it for news, but largely because I want to hear the those- voices. Yeah, man. Are you into AMSR? The second cup. <laughs> oh, is that still around? With I think Lois so. writes us? Oh, God bless her. Second cup concert? Uh huh. Mm-hmm. You ever looked up pictures of these people? I know people freak out about us, but. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it happens. But you should see these people. <laughs> I looked up Lois writes us, and I think I expected her to be like 400 years old. Yeah, she's not? Nope. I've No, I guess I've never seen her. She's a 27. No. <laughs> <laughs> Diane Reem is 30. Yeah. They like to hang on to folks, you know? Yeah. Terry Gross, she's been doing that show for... Since the 80s. Amazing. Yeah. We should be so lucky, right? Uh, Hey, your lips to God's ear. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So, Chuck, um, there's there's a couple of things going on here. Okay. Yeah. There are... um, We're getting into the sides. Yeah. Yeah. There's so one of the things that Congress likes to do every about five years is say, you know that public broadcasting, that left leaning commie drivel? Yeah. Why are we paying for that? Yeah. Why? <laughs> and so I was reading this dude named David Boaz or Bose, B O A Z. Okay. Take your pick. He's a one of the higher ups at the Cato Institute at 
libertarian think tank. He hates public broadcasting in America. Yeah, most libertarians do. Like it is, it really gets to this guy. Yeah. And he makes a couple of, of pretty decent points, right? Like he, his, to him, it's a transfer of wealth from the average taxpayer up to produce entertainment that, that, you know, the upper middle class typically consumes. Oh, okay. Sure. Even though it's intended for everybody. Right. Um, and so from like a taxpayer standpoint, I can kind of understand where if you didn't agree with, if you thought that this was leaning against you ideologically and taking your taxpayer money. Yeah. I could see how something like that would drive you bonkers. Yeah, sure. Um, to me though, I think everybody kind of assumes that public broadcasting in the U.S. leans a certain way. Uh huh. Typically leftward. But supposedly study after study find that they may be slightly left leaning, but they're typically a lot closer to neutral than than um, they're they're given credit for. Yeah, there have been overall. Yeah, there have been some things that have happened over the years, uh, notably in 2011, uh, NPR president at the time and CEO Vivian Schiller uh, had to resign um, or did resign at least. Uh, when there was a video, uh, undercover video in a meeting where one of the executives called Tea Party members seriously racist, racist people. Right. <laughs> it was a big deal. Right. In fact, most of the stuff, when you look up NPR c- controversies, is all dated at 2011 for that reason. It was a big stink. Well, when they got rid of Vivian Schiller, they specifically yeah. said that under her watch, some controversies had really gotten out of control and they just no longer thought she could lead any longer. Yeah. And so there was a study. Uh, researchers at Duke University did a study of a Twitter. Of the Twitter network of NPR mm-hmm. and like basically did all this Duke University style math that I won't <laughs> bore you with. But uh, to, to analyze whether or not NPR was left leaning or not. Right. Um, and uh, it wasn't just NPR. They did this with a lot of news outlets. And, and I think they never actually posted. The New York Times didn't. Um, there was a blog about all this. Never posted where NPR fell. But they were asked. And um, one of the researchers said um, NPR resides somewhat to the left of center, but further to the right than Katie Couric. Uh, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, or Brian Williams. And that was using their algorithm. And then NPR kind of um, hit back and said, in fact, Steve Inskeep. We are way further left than (laughs) Brian Williams. uh, Steve Inskeep wrote wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal and said, in all these surveys, most listeners consistently identify themselves as middle of the road or conservative. So a lot of people are like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) Like, That can't be true. Right. And so they did, um, they got the actual numbers from those surveys, and 28% of NPR's audience said that they were conservative or very conservative, uh, 25% middle of the road, and 37% liberal or very liberal. So 53% are middle of the road or conservative, mm-hmm. 62% are middle of the road or liberal. So it's not as heavy, and this isn't their programming, this is their audience. Right. But it's not as heavy left as some might have you believe. Yeah. And and just because that's their audience, I mean, that kind of suggests that it is a little more left-leaning because people tend to go seek out stuff that supports their own beliefs rather than yeah, challenges it. Probably. Hats off to the middle-of-the-road conservative ones that listen. Yeah. You know? Sure. 
You want to take another break before we get back to it? Yeah. Okay. So the, the I think it's almost really just kind of more a matter of perception. We were talking about whether NPR is left-leaning or not. Right. Or public broadcasting in general. I think it's probably a little bit left-leaning, but it's not how, you know, it's not like the info wars of the left. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you mean CNN. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the thing about criticizing NPR, though, is – you can go one way. You can say, uh, oh, it's a little left leaning. But if you look on the other side, you'll find people like Noam Chomsky who say that's, you're getting mired down in the details. Mm-hmm. He said, if you really listen to NPR or you watch PBS, um, and you listen to the stuff they're saying or the people they're having on as experts, yeah, it's the same that you're going to find on cable news and uh, I think one NPR, former NPR correspondent, basically said that NPR runs press releases for the Pentagon. Right. Noam Chomsky was saying it was basically structurally there to support the status quo, where if, right. if they're presenting a debate and all, all, you know, both sides of the debate, it's all still very structured within the status quo. They're not bringing in somebody who's like, well, all of this is moot point. We need to completely redo yeah. The, the structure of our economy or something like that. They don't bring in outside voices like that. They bring in voices that are exist within normalcy or whatever. So there's a whole camp out there um, that, that tend to say, you remember that thing that Lyndon Johnson originally did, the reason why he founded yeah. the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, to kind of keep a clamp down on criticism, to keep things within a, a, a reasonable spectrum? Well, he succeeded. I, I kind of tend to agree with that. Yeah, I don't. I feel like they usually provide counterpoints. Right. They definitely provide counterpoints, but it's all that counterpoint is something that's still within the bounds of normalcy. Yeah. There's not somebody coming in and saying, like, forget those either point. Like, they're both. We just got to throw everything away and start over again. Yeah. That that he, he, I think the point is, is that it's lacking really, really outside viewpoints. Right. You know what I'm saying? Outside the status quo. So this has all come uh, up in the news more recently uh, because this year when um, uh, Trump proposed his his budget proposal for, um, which is not, you know, this is not settled or anything by any means. In fact, NPR people are like, "Eh, you know, let's just settle down. Like, this isn't, this is round one. Um, But the proposal at least called for the eventual complete abolish meant mm-hmm. that a word yep. of public funding uh, for for PBS and NPR or for CPB. Right. And again, you've got people on both sides saying, good, great. Let's just get it over with. Yeah. And eventual meaning they wouldn't just pull. It would be gradually over time. Right. Which, of course, you know, makes more sense than just like just doing it all at once. Tearing the bandaid off. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I, I'm always been a big supporter of public broadcasting, but I thought, you know, maybe. Just be free from those shackles finally. Mm-hmm. Maybe the public would step up where, where you get hurt and apparently where 
um, PBS and NPR are both kind of trying to voice their most of their concerns is that, you know, of course, your big cities are going to be fine. Right. But it's these smaller market member stations that rely way more on uh, the CPB funding mm-hmm. um, that are going to be most hurt. And these are the people that need this stuff the most. Right. These rural communities uh, need public broadcasting. Right. So it, it's hard to argue with that point, you know. It is for sure. There's actually um, a historical lesson in here. You can look to New Zealand for this. Like back in the late 80s, they tried a deregulation experiment where they had one channel, TVNZ, uh-huh. in the whole country. And um, the government said, you know what? You guys are done with the teat of the government. Go sell some ads. And they tried this experiment. And TVNZ actually came out as, I believe it survived, Um but it, it was worse for the wear as a result. And ironically, um, this deregulation opened a space for a true um, non-profit, non-commercial television called um, New Zealand On Air uh, that actually came and thrived in the wake of this transformation for TVNZ from uh, public broadcasting to commercially driven. Interesting. So it, it, it's it's not necessarily going to work out well for the people who listen to NPR or watch PBS if they go to completely commercially driven programming. And the whole reason that you have the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, ostensibly, is because commercially driven journalism wasn't getting the job done before. Right. And it certainly isn't now. Yeah. Newsrooms being cut um, news that is on cable being more and more polarized one way or another, and oh, sure. it's just shouting match after shouting match. Yeah. If you really watch the news, the only people, aside from some of those old dyed-in-the-wool news people on, like, um, you know, NBC or CBS's, like, nightly news, yeah, the only ones really doing real journalism are the ones who are working for public broadcasting. Yeah. At the very least, they're the ones who are trying the hardest, for sure. Yeah, you could totally make that argument. But at the same time, we're in a weird limbo state where everybody's ticked off, right? Because it's PBS and NPR are not just not fully publicly funded. Right. And they're not just advertising-driven. Right. They're a combination of the two that 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 compromises them two different ways. Right. Which is why both sides are saying one or the other. Right. I tend to feel like they should just go completely publicly funded and we should adopt something like a British model where it's like you're funded for the next five years, go do the public some good. And you can't have any underwriting whatsoever. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting in that um, most of Europe and Britain definitely went that other direction, like you mentioned at the beginning. And in that one article you sent over talking about – ways it's done public broadcasting in other countries as a whole. And they uh, were talking about the BBC and they said, you know, who is the average? can't remember who they asked, but who's the average BBC viewer? Mm-hmm. And the answer was every British citizen. Right. <laughs> like it's a much different deal. Sure. You know? Yeah. And the, the BBC's criticized, too, for being oh, yeah. a government mouthpiece in a lot of ways, too. But they're also critical of the government in ways that other people aren't. And they'll also put news on at a time when everybody is home to watch it. Right. That kind of stuff. So the future of broadcasting, public broadcasting, um, isn't as simple as, like, are they going to be publicly funded or not? Um, it's whether or not they're still viable. Uh, in 2015... Um, 
the median audience uh, age was 54 years old. And in 20 years before that, it was 45. That's a pretty, pretty big age. Yeah, I mean, at least it wasn't 74. (laughs) Like it stayed exactly the same. Right. Those same people just got 20 years older. Right. So they are getting some younger listeners, but it's the way that uh, especially people under 35 years old consume media is radically different than their parents. Yeah, and there's plenty of people out there who are younger who qualify as quote-unquote millennials sure. who are like listening to stuff that NPR puts out. They're listening to the huge, huge slate of NPR podcasts. Right. Right? There's a ton of podcasts that NPR puts out. A lot of their radio programs are repurposed into podcasts. Yeah. And so there's a lot of younger people who are listening to it. The problem is that poses a conundrum to the, the public broadcasting model yep. as it stands in the U.S., though, right? Well, yeah, I looked at the top 20 today on iTunes just to kind of see, and NPR had eight of the top 20 shows Man, as of today. That's stiff competition for us. Hidden Brain, This American Life, Planet Money, um, I guess S-Town and Serial both They would qualify because right? they, they come out of This American Life yeah. stable, and that's where it got its start. Uh, their highest-ranked show today was Ted Radio Hour at number five. Incidentally, we were number four. Oh, good. Good to know. <laughs> but... um yeah, I mean, eight shows in the top 20, but it does pose an interesting conundrum for them. I know when they were started to dip their toe into podcasts, and then once podcasts started generating revenue via ads, mm-hmm. it, they weren't quite sh- sure how to handle all that stuff. No, and part of the part of the problem is, is if you're a small local affiliate, you've paid a lot of money yeah. to get fresh air on your airwaves. Yep. You don't want some 20-year-old going and listening to it on the new whiz-bang NPR app that the City Slickers came up with. Yeah. You want them listening to your station yep. so that you can get their donations. Um, so for a while, NPR had uh, an embargo on even mentioning the fact that there were podcasts out there on air. Yeah. Um, right now, I think they say that it's okay to mention that an announcer hosts a podcast but they don't say like, "Hey, go download the podcast, go to iTunes or Apple." Right? Podcasts. They, say, <laughs> they say that they host a podcast. <laughs> well, it's a legit concern. But my whole thing is, you can't like, you can't fight on-demand listening or, no. or viewing. No, you just can't fight it. You can't tell a twenty-six-year-old, "No, you need to turn tune in from seven to nine a.m." To listen to us. They're like, what is this tune in that you <laughs> yeah. speak of? What is seven to nine you right. speak of? Yeah. No, it's true. And if if you're fighting against it, you're you're going to lose. Yeah, because that's the beauty of podcasts. What's sad is looking at it from the outside, it looks like NPR and PBS get this because NPR has its own app. So PBS has a, an on-demand video app as well. Yeah. They, it looks They're like the larger institutions get this. But I don't see what anyone's doing to save the local affiliates, the small town ones that are really going to be the first to suffer, or if they're just being sacrificed as canaries in the coal mine, um, in in which case that's just the way it's going to roll because the kids in those small towns are still going to listen to NPR. They're just not listening to it on the radio any longer. Well, but then, you know, there's a segment of people that would say, well, you know what? Them's the breaks. And if your little member station goes out of business, 
then that's called changing times. Okay, but let's take this back. Do you remember my example where Corporation X was poisoning the water in your small town? Yeah. And no one outside of the town knew about it. Uh-huh. And Corporation X advertised on the networks, the local news. Yeah. So the local news weren't going to take them on. That's why you need that small, tiny affiliate who not have to worry about funding and advertising so that they can do good journalism and expose that corporation to the rest of the town. Well, if that small radio station or that small PBS affiliate dries up because of the NPR app, Corporation Next gets away with poisoning the whole town. Nobody knows. Town dies, gets blown over by dust, and it's like it was <laughs> never there. I wonder, and certainly there are people in uh, NPR corporate that are way more knowledgeable in trying to solve this. Peter Folkenflick. Than me. <laughs> but I wonder if they could, like, on the podcast. Peter Overby. David Folkenflick. Okay. I combine the two into one super host. They should one they, super correspondent. Yeah, a super group. They're like damn Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was on a plane flight with them one time, by the way. Were they rowdy? They weren't in first class, but I remember being like, however old I was when that came out, fifteen or sixteen, seventeen, something like that. Were you really? And like Jack Blade was sitting on one side of me, Ted Nugent was in front of me, uh-huh. Tommy Shaw was behind me, right. And it was like I was part of the band. I was sitting in the middle of these That's really cool. music legends. And I thought, man, I love Night Ranger and I love Sticks. Right. But I hate you, Ted Nugent. <laughs> <laughs> He's reading. I remember specifically him reading a hunting magazine. Yeah. Oh, I can believe that. And just uh, fantasizing. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather be hunting. Well, I can tell you t-shirt. Ted Nugent is not listening to this particular episode. <laughs> He's of certainly not. Uh, so my idea was maybe like, I wonder if they could encourage via the podcast, say, hey, we know you enjoy us on your podcast, but why don't you donate money to your l- local members affiliate, even though you don't consume it through the, there, to keep the cause alive, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's just my uh, dumb outsider's opinion. Well, what if you turn local affiliates from broadcast-based, like, you know, you've got to spend a lot of money on a transmitter and on uplinks and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. What if you just turned them into news bureaus? Like they were for investigative journalism and reporting for local. And then that local stuff could be kicked up the line. You know, some local reporting appears on the national edition of of morning edition or whatever. What if you just turned them all into into news bureaus instead? And then they just went completely to online consumption. What if like the head of NPR just like swerved off the road? (laughs) It's like, oh, my God, that's it. These guys figured it out. (laughs) So. Uh, getting back to their new models, the, the MP, NPR One is the app, and about 40% of their users are under 35, that coveted demo. And um, But here's the thing. They did some surveys, and they said a third of those users seldom listen to traditional radio, but 25% said they, because of the app, were starting to listen to more terrestrial radio. Right. Which I'm not sure I get how that works, but... Well, I could see just being like, oh, I didn't know this was here. Wait a minute. There's like a whole radio station that has this. I'm going to go check that out. Maybe. I could see that. Uh, and then there is Passport, <clears throat> which you mentioned was, uh, I don't think by name, but that's the PBS uh, video on demand service that you get if you donate to your local station. I think $5 a month donation will get you access to Passport. Uh, and that's if you wanted to binge Downton Abbey. Mm-hmm. You could have done that via passport. Right. Did you watch that? I saw an episode or two. I just it I never am. tickled my gizzard. Okay. 
I loved it. Big fan. Yeah, I know a lot of people did. I, um, I didn't hate it or anything. I didn't like, yeah, shoot sure. the TV when it came on. Yeah, you didn't go or shoot my it. passport <laughs> app. Uh, and then the other big shakeup in recent years, um, last year in 2016, Sesame Street made the big jump over to HBO after 46 years on PBS. And there were a lot of mixed feelings about this. Sure. Some people saying, Oh man, what a, uh, the, what a drag. You're now on a pay station and these, uh, these kids and, uh, that can't afford cable TV and HBO maybe right. that really need Sesame Street can't watch it anymore. Yeah. Or these new episodes at and least. Big Bird said TS. <laughs> I no, got some money. Big Bird said, you want Sesame Street to stay on the air and this is the only way it's going to happen. Yeah. And you can watch these episodes nine months after they air on HBO. So to me, it's kind of a win-win. Sure. I thought that was cool that Big Bird went in and negotiated that, that PBS still got episodes so too. after a certain time. Yeah. Good for you, Big Bird. And Elmo. So, so to me, Chuck, this is my thing. I think public broadcasting should be 100% public. Originally, the idea was when you bought a television set, there was a tax on it that went specifically to fund oh, yeah? public broadcasting. I think I knew that. So it got looped into the appropriations process, which, uh-huh. so they have to go beg for the money every year. Um, if it were publicly funded through some sort of tax that was designated just for it, mm-hmm. and um, there was also, this is a really big point, too. This is how it was originally supposed to be. They were shielded from government meddling by a nonpartisan board of directors whose entire job it was was to keep the the government out of public broadcasting. Yeah. And they could just focus on good, unfettered journalism. Uh-huh. That would be the ideal. And I don't think it's yeah. too late to go to that model. I think commercial commercial broadcasting shows that there's a huge need for it. Yeah. But that in the U.S., it's in this weird limbo state. Is it commercial? Is it publicly funded? Right. You know, what's the there's so many easily fixed problems with it, but you have to go all one way or all the other to me. Do you know what would be great and also a disaster now that I've thought about it for a half a second <laughs> what? is if you could like when you go to pay your taxes, you could select a box that say, I would like a portion of my taxes to go to funding public broadcasting or to funding mm-hmm. schools. That wouldn't work. Well, if that was just what they relied on, it might not work. But why not add it on there? Could do it as well in addition to. Let's public broadcasting. I got a few little facts here, though. Oh, we got some more public broadcasting. Um, I just looked up NPR's own, like, interesting facts about NPR. Uh Uh, All things considered, their very first episode was covering the um, 20,000-person protest of the Vietnam War. Featured a 24-minute sound portrait of the protest. Wow. The very first thing they ever did. Yeah. It's pretty ballsy. Can we say ballsy? I don't know. We'll find out how many balls we have. Sure, we're we not have. NPR. <laughs> <laughs> I heard Terry Gross. She was on uh, a Mark Maron episode, and she talked about not kind of a bit of a desire to be free from the shackles of her, the restrictions of being on NPR. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mainly she said when they do like readings from an author and they have to really go in ahead of time and say, hey, you can't say this word oh, yeah. from your reading on the air and stuff yeah. like that. She doesn't want to get up there and just feel far and feel foul. Right. That's not Terry Gross's style. No, but she also <laughs> doesn't want to be like, uh, by the way, you can't say the B word. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
NPR had a lot of firsts. One of them, Susan Stamberg, uh, all things considered host in 1972, was the very first woman to be an anchor for a national news broadcast oh, in the U.S. Oh, that's cool. Uh, the Simpsons has special love for them. Terry Gross, Bob Boylan, Robert Siegel, and Carl Cassell have all been. Carl Castle. What did I say, Cassell? Mm-hmm. Jeez. You were thinking of Howard Cosell. I was. Carl Castle, they were all on The Simpsons. Yeah. And then uh, Morning Edition had some other names before they settled on that. Uh, Morning Air. First Things First. It's not bad. Uh, That is pretty good. Very NPR. And then, this sounds so NPR, it's probably why they didn't do it. Tweed Jacket. (laughs) Starting Line. Yeah, yeah, that's not too bad. I think uh, Morning Edition's good. I think it's the best. Uh, And then finally... Bob Boylan's great, great show, Tiny Desk Concerts. Do you ever mm-hmm. listen to those? No, but I'm familiar with them. Oh, man, it's just the best. Uh, he had a, a band called uh, Tiny Desk Unit, and that was why he named the show Tiny Desk Concerts. One of Thank the great you music shows. for clearing that up. Of why I, it was named that? Yeah, I had no idea why. Well, I mean, it's named that because they perform in the in his NPR office. at his like, Right, near that's his. what I thought, but it's still... Yeah, sure. Is his desk like a miniature? Right. <laughs> I've got one more for you. All right. So there was this 2011 study um, that found that of 14 Western democracies, the United States was the only one to rely almost entirely on commercial broadcasting to inform its citizenry. That's precarious. Interesting. I know that same article you sent did a lot of studies that found that those countries, those other countries are uh, generally m- much more well-informed. Right. Uh, about news events. Yes. Traffic accident? <laughs> Everybody knows. Yeah. Uh, if you want to know more about public broadcasting, go listen to NPR or watch PBS and decide for yourself what you think about them. Uh, and in the meantime, you can also type those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. Since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. Uh, this is from Aaron in Miami. A-R-O-N? I think it's just Aaron. I don't know. Okay. A-A-Rod. <laughs> the great Key and Peele skit. Yeah. Uh, hey, guys. Just got into podcasts a couple of months ago, and I'm a catch-up fan. Uh, we did a... Remember that catch-up uh, podcast? Sure, yeah. It's a good one. I'm a firm believer it belongs in the pantry, not the refrigerator. I've had many debates about this, uh, mostly while intoxicated, but that's beside <laughs> the point. Uh, many things work well in contrast, like a frosty beverage... Buffalo wings or a crunchy potato chip alongside a softer sandwich. But who wants to dip a hot french fry into cold ketchup? Uh, i got to agree with this guy. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, he said, to be clear, my claim is based solely on memory. However, I recall Heinz introducing their fridge fit ketchup bottle in 2006. During a debate about pantry versus refrigerated, someone on the other side pointed out it was not either to refrigerate after opening for best results Refrigerate after opening. It was like not either or. I'm not sure what he's saying there. Who knows? Still confusing. Uh, I was completely for it. I've never seen such verbiage on a Heinz bottle before. Uh, and then it dawned on me Heinz had just hit uh, and released the fridge fit bottle. Of course, they will direct you to keep this in the fridge. It's part of the marketing strategy. It has nothing to do with the best way to enjoy the ketchup goodness. This guy was wasted when he wrote this. Yeah, it's this becoming clear. It's a little confusing in the middle there. But he said that. Uh, Thanks for the information and entertainment. And remember, say no to refrigeration of ketchup. So, A.A. Ron. Thanks for that. (laughs) 
Aaron? Reread the sentence. Maybe it's me. No, no. I I heard you say it, and it it sounded like you were reading it correctly. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Aaron. We hope you feel better in the morning. <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us like Aaron did, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. Uh, you can send uh, an email to stuffpodcast.howstuffworks.com. As always, join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. <laughs>